Numbers 14. Um, Sarah, you have it open there. Would you want to just read the first ten verses? Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in the presence of all the assembly of the congregation of the sons of Israel. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunel, of those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, saying, The land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they shall be our prey. Their protection has been removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. Okay, thank you. Thank you. The first three, uh, first two verses use the word all three times. Or at least the word uh, from Hebrew that's translated all is used three times. It's translated all in verse 1. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. In verse 2, all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And it's also used in the next phrase, the whole congregation said to them, So the words all in verse 1 and verse 2 and the word whole in verse 2 all come from the same word which indicates all of the people, all of the nation is grumbling. God has saved all of them from the land of Egypt. And now the ten spies come back with the bad report saying we cannot take the land and all the congregation acts almost in unison. As far as the text goes right here, all in unison. They all lift up their voices, they cry, they wept. The whole congregation is involved. And they say, we wish we had died in the land of Egypt. We wish we died in the land of Egypt and... Um, or, or, or we wish we died in this wilderness. And God is going to pay attention to those words. He says, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Now, what I find interesting here in verse 3. You remember, as we studied last time in Numbers chapter 13. That when the spies came back, they do not mention the Lord in their report. They don't mention the name of the Lord in the fact the Lord was going to give them the land. However, now that they are broken and discouraged, they don't have any problem blaming the Lord. Why has the Lord done this to us? They don't think about Him in the midst of His promises, in the midst of a crisis, but now they blame Him for all that has gone wrong. 
just as we did last time, there are going to be times, Lord willing, today that we're going to invoke Deuteronomy 1. And listen to these words from Deuteronomy 1, verses 26 and 27. Yet you were not willing to go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, Because the Lord hates us, He has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. This lack of faith leads them to reinterpret the nature of God. The exodus from Egypt and the gift of the promised land which were demonstrations of His love to Israel because of a lack of faith becomes an evidence of hate. They say, because the Lord hates us, Deuteronomy 1.27 He has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us in the hand of enemies. And they said, let us appoint a leader to return to Egypt. In verse 4. Everything since Genesis 50 at least, maybe before then, has been pointing to the fact that Israel is going to leave Egypt. And now they're going to undermine all that God has done. And they said, let us appoint a leader to go back to Egypt. Remember when Moses was separating those two Israelites fighting? That one pushed Moses aside and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Well, the answer to that is easy. God did it. But they're now going to appoint another leader. They don't want to accept Moses as a leader. And they're going to go back to the land of slavery. One of the descriptions of Egypt in the Bible was that it was an iron furnace. It was a place of affliction. It was a place of disaster. And they've forgotten all of that. Oh, we're better off. Let's appoint a leader. And let's go back forgetting all that God has saved them from. Now, I do have some passages in my notes. Uh, I'm reluctant in sharing them because sometime in the future we may deal with this in a, in a sermon. It is striking how frequently in Israel's history they turn to Egypt in times of trouble. It happens in the last days of the northern kingdom. It happens in the last days of the southern kingdom. It happens constantly throughout biblical history that they turn in the wrong place. Verse 5, Moses and Aaron see this and they fall on their faces. Uh, They are anticipating judgment from God, and I think this expresses humility. But Joshua and Caleb, the ones who spied out the land, they tore their clothes. This is an abomination to them. And they tear their clothes in grief at the people's sin. And they said, the land which we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good Land. In the Hebrew, there are actually two appearances of the word very back to back here in verse 7. It's translated exceedingly good land, but it is a very, very 
good land. Now that occurs only about eight times in the Old Testament where you see the word very used back to back. And, and, and right here, it's to emphasize this is a good land. And they invoke God's name. Notice in verse 8, the evil spies never did in Numbers 13, verses 25 through 33. But Joshua and Caleb do. And they say, if the Lord is pleased with us, He will bring us into the land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. The other spies acknowledged in 1327 that the land was flowing with milk and honey. Joshua and Caleb described the land that same way. A land flowing with milk and honey. That's the way God has often described it. Joshua and Caleb do not refute the other spies as far as what they said about the strength of the people or the fortifications of their cities. They don't address that they just say if the Lord is pleased with us he will bring us into the land in verse 9 do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land for they shall be our prey Now that expression in verse 9, do any of your translations have anything different? They shall be our prey. Uh, Mary? New King James has bread. They shall be our bread. That's literally what it says. They shall be our bread. We're going to eat them up. They're not going to devour us as uh, they stated before. This land devours everybody in it. We're going to eat them up. They're not going to eat us up. They're going to be our prey. They're going to be our bread. Their protection has been removed from them. Their protection has been removed. Now, let me give you a couple of places this word for removed is used. In Judges 16 verse 20, we're dealing with Samson. And he did not know the Spirit of the Lord had departed from him. In 1 Samuel 28, Samuel calls up, or excuse me, Saul calls up Samuel. And he said he called him up because the Lord departed from me. The Lord had departed from Samson. The Lord had departed from Saul. And that spelled destruction and disaster for both of those men. And here, their protection has been removed. Even though they may be as great as the Anakim, their protection has been removed and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But it says all the congregation wanted to stone them with stones. Who is the them they're wanting to stone? Is it Moses and Aaron? Is it Joshua and Caleb? Is it all four of them? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I tend to think it's either Joshua and Caleb or all four of them. But, But think about this. The ones who have acted in faith are threatened with stoning 
by the people of God. I don't mean this to be facetious nor funny. Should we be should we be surprised if we encounter a lack of faith in congregations? Should that really surprise us? I am always called off guard by it. In a certain sense, I think it's good to be. But the Scripture's pretty much told us that, hasn't it? I mean, it's given us pretty clear warnings that even God's people usually respond in unbelief to God's promises. What questions do you have right there, um, Ryan? When, um, when God promises to Abraham, um, <clears throat> gives him the promises he talks about, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Uh-huh. I've always thought of that as he's waiting for the Israelites to go until to the right time. Uh-huh. So yeah. we think of that, though, as that they, they, they were protected by God, like from, like, it was under, God was protecting them like he would protect the Israelites until such a time in which to a certain degree yes because any nation um, like Acts 17 says God has determined um, the boundaries of their habitation that's uh, around verses 26 or 27 of Acts 17 that I'm referring to in a certain sense yes because any group of people who are inhabiting the land living in peace and safety uh, it is a blessing from God so in a certain point yes um, you're particularly I think probably highlighting the idea of the protection being removed from them um, so apparently there was some sense in which they had it before and they're going to have it at the end of this chapter. So I hadn't thought of it exactly that way, but that's probably it's probably a good way to say it. So Phil. is this is this another restating of you, you pointed out in thirteen uh, where they gave instructions to the spies to decide whether it was weak or strong, good or bad, fortifications. Uh-huh. You know, it, so he kind of restates it again. You know, it flows with milk and honey. Their defenses have been removed. I don't, I'm yes. just wondering. I'm trying to scan it to see if those are repeated again here. If they are repeated again here in this eight and nine. Okay. You follow what I'm saying? Um, I, I I don't know if I did, but part of the fault was mine, Phil. If, if you want to keep looking, because I saw something in my notes that I didn't say, that I should have said. So keep looking for that, and let me also tell you a point that I wanted to give. The word protection that is used there in verse 9, protection. It is a word that is often in the Bible translated shade or shadow. And that word refers to God giving us shelter or protection in each of these verses and many more. Psalm 91, verse 1, is one of the um, most eloquent statements of this. 
He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. The word shadow is uh, this particular word used here. So their their protection has been removed. Not only is the word removed significant, but the word protection is a word that is often used to describe God as our shade or as our shield. So, did you want to elaborate more, Phil, on well, that? And maybe I wouldn't. You, you said, you know, you made the point that when they were getting ready to go in and spy it out, they were looking to see whether it was weak or strong, whether land, whether the land was good or bad, their camps were fortified or not. Yes. And and then when they reported, you kind of illustrated again that they they hit on those points and they did find out those mm-hmm. things. And then here again, it seems like. He's kind of hitting on the same thing. Or the, or the, in a sense, he does. In a sense, he doesn't. From, from the sense he doesn't is the sense that he doesn't specifically refer to their size, but he emphasizes their protection has been removed from us. I, I do think, though, Phil, what it's doing, he is not... He's not disagreeing with their report as far as the report of the fruit of the land, report of the fortifications of the land, or report of the strength of the people. He's not criticizing the spies' assessment of that. He's criticizing the conclusion they draw from that. The conclusion they draw from that is we are not able... The conclusion he draws from that, Joshua and Caleb both draw from that, if the Lord delights in us, he will give the land. They see pretty much the same thing and seem to be pretty much in assessment on that, pretty much in agreement on that. Some of these phrases that are used may touch upon the fact those people are strong. They may kind of allude to it. Uh, particularly in light of Numbers 13. I think we should see them in that light. But but, uh, but the main thing I was stressing is they're, just, they're not disagreeing with the report. They're not saying, hey, people are weak. Cities are really, it's not that big of a trouble. They're saying, if the Lord delight in us. And um, are we going to see things through the eyes of faith? Or are we going to see them through... Unbelief. That is a lot of the question. Now, verses 11 through 19 are going to remind you of something we've studied before uh, or you've read before. In verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me? And how long will they not believe in me? Despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst, I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them, and I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than you. Where have we heard that statement before? I will make you a nation greater and mightier than they were. Where was that? Yeah, and, and the golden calf. You know, when the people did that, God promised Moses that. Uh, you all have mentioned the promises to Abraham before in class today. Um, could God have fulfilled His promises to Abraham and destroyed the rest of them and made of Moses a great nation? He could have. He could have. Uh, but uh, 
Moses is going to plead for the people. Moses pleads. Well, let's read these words. I think there are two main points on which Moses bases his plea. Uh, and let me just ask you what they are. Verse 13. Moses said to the, to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for by your strength you, will, you brought up this people from their midst, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of the land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen eye to eye while your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if you slay this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, Because the Lord could not bring this people into the land which he promised them by oath. Therefore he slaughtered them in the wilderness. But now I pray, let the power of the Lord be great, just as you have uh, declared, The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgressions. He will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. What would you say was the basis of Moses' appeal to God? What others would think of God and what God's essential nature is. Okay. Very good way to say it. Um, the God's, what others would think of God is God's reputation. God has to be concerned about his reputation. Think about that. Does God do God's people sometimes cause God to have a bad reputation? It's always been the case. And it's the case right here. But but God's reputation and God's nature But first of all, let's deal with this point about his reputation. And you see that particularly highlighted in Numbers 14, verses 13 through 16. Now, it is the same kind of argument that Moses made before in the same kind of circumstance. God promised Moses, I'll destroy them and make of you a great nation. And Moses had prayed... In Exodus 32 and verse 12, that that not happened. Because the Egyptians uh, will say you weren't able to deliver this people into the land, therefore you destroyed them in the wilderness. It will, it will cause your name to be mocked. Here he mentions the Egyptians in verse 13. The Egyptians will hear of it. And in verse 14, they will tell the inhabitants of the land. They're going to tell the people of Canaan this. So God is particularly concerned about his reputation 
among the people that he's just demonstrated his power to, the Egyptians, and among those people that he's about to demonstrate his power to, the occupants of the land of Canaan. But Moses pleads with God on the basis of the fact that they are your people. Now, do you remember a saying? You remember a saying that generally in Hebrew, the the, the subject is inherent in the verb. If you have a separate personal pronoun, it is really being stressed. You have the separate personal pronoun you three times in verse 14. Three times in verse 14. Moses is stressing your relationship to these people The fact that you, O God, are seen eye to eye while your cloud stands over them and you go before them in a pillar of cloud. God is stressing, Moses is stressing God's relationship with the people. And because your relationship with this people has been intimate, your reputation is tied to how this people do. Now, a passage where you see this kind of thing going on is in Ezekiel 36, particularly verses 16 through 38. The people had gone into Babylonian captivity because of the multitude of their sin. And in a sense, when God's people were taken into slavery, that caused God's name, God's reputation to be brought into question. And so therefore, God is going to bring them out of captivity as well to show they didn't go into captivity because of the weakness of their God. They went into captivity because of their own sin. So he pleads based on the Lord's reputation. Um, He also pleads on the basis of the Lord's nature. Now, you do not find a plea based on the nature of God uh, as directly in Exodus 32. Because what Moses is basically quoting is from Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, where the Lord reveals Himself. Moses is taking God's words that he used to reveal about himself and pleading them back to God, asking God to show mercy to the people. So the Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and forgiving iniquity and transgression. Now, if you look in Exodus 32 or Exodus 34, the statement of this is a little bit longer and fuller. But there is enough here that's powerful. Lord, you're a forgiving and gracious and compassionate God. And he says in verse 19, forgive them just like you have done the whole time. They have been in this wilderness. Now you show me a group of people, you show a group, well, but any two people here in particular. When somebody's been married as long as I have, 37 years, and even maybe sometimes for people who've been married shorter than that, 
I can tell you a couple things right off the bat. At some time, she's forgiven him for something. And at some time, he's forgiven her for something. They got any kind of a marriage at all. Because you're both going to make mistakes. And maybe mistakes is too gentle a word. You're both going to do things stupid and foolish and sinful. And for God to be the God of a group of people for a long time, they're not going to have to forgive Him. But for any group of people that's been a Christian many years, I know they've been forgiven often. Because we sin and we fall short. Our very existence as God's people is proof of God's mercy, God's forgiveness, God's grace. And that was true of Israel. But I want to also stress this. In verses 20 through 25 and really 20 through 35, stress this pretty clearly. Forgiveness does not always make the consequences of sin disappear. Can there be forgiveness while there is also consequences? There was some Brotherhood paper years ago where someone had written an article who was a Christian who had committed murder. And he was on death row. Now, I rejoice in the fact that he has been taught, that he has received the gospel and been forgiven. But does forgiveness eliminate the consequences? Is it my place? I don't feel that it's my place. Let me just volunteer. I don't feel it's my place to go and say, okay, he has asked for forgiveness so the state can't execute him. No. There's still consequences of sin even after forgiveness of sin. And this is going to be true for Israel. God says in verse 20, So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. But indeed, as I live, because he can swear by none greater, he swears by himself. But indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. In verse 22, Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. They have tested me ten times. I don't think he's referring there to a literal ten times, though rabbis sometimes would identify ten specific points that he's speaking of. I think ten times is used figuratively to say they have done this over and over and over and over again. They continue to sin in this way. And they continue to sin in this way of testing me. Remember that. Keep that in mind. We may not get back to it today, but Lord willing, we will sometime. They have tested me these ten times. They've not listened to my voice. 
And so now the Lord who swore to bring to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would bring their descendants into the land, now he is swearing to them that they will not enter the land. But in verse 24, But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit, and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. Who has been identified as God's servant in this book previous to this point? Moses Moses has. Now Caleb is identified as his servant. That is a high honor to be spoken of as God's servant. My servant Caleb has a different spirit. And he's followed me fully. Only Caleb is mentioned in verse 24, in verse 30, and verse 38. Joshua would be mentioned with him. But now Caleb is a different spirit. I'm going to bring him into the land. His descendants will possess it. And says the Amalekites and the Canaanites live in the valleys. Turn tomorrow and set out to the wilderness by way of the Red Sea. Now what is the significance of that statement in verse five, verse 25? Set out by way to the Red Sea. Josh. Well, if you didn't know better, it kind of sounds like they're going back to Egypt. Yes. I think to some degree God is punishing them by giving them what they ask for. Be careful what you ask for. Because sometimes the last thing in the world we want is to get it. And they said, let's pick a leader and let's go back to Egypt in verse 4. Well, they start out on the way toward the Red Sea. God is sending them back in the direction of Egypt. They had also said, would that we had died in this wilderness. That's going to be very significant in the next section. Because God says, I heard what you were saying, I listened to your words, and you're going to get exactly what you asked for. You're going to die in this wilderness. I think that's repeated uh, five, four or five times in this next section. Beginning with verse 26. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron. How long shall I bear with this evil congregation. Who are grumbling against me. I've heard the complaints of the sons of Israel. Which they are making against me. Say to them as I live. Says the Lord. Just as you have spoken in my hearing. So I will surely do to you. Your corpses shall fall in this wilderness. So verse 29 is the first time he specifically says, you're going to die in this wilderness. You said, well, would that we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness? He said, your corpses will fall in this wilderness. In verse 29, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, Verse 30, surely you shall not come into the land which I swore to settle you except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you said would become a prey, I will bring them in and they shall know the land. 
which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses shall fall in this wilderness. Your sons shall be shepherds for forty years in the wilderness, and they shall suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. According to the number of days which you spied out the land, forty days, for every day you shall bear your guilt, even forty years, you shall know my opposition. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely I will do this. Um, surely this I will do to this evil congregation who have gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be destroyed, and there they shall die. So, it's emphasized in this wilderness they will die. This is what they hoped in 14.2. And now in verse 29, verse 32, verse 33, and verse 35, that is exactly what they're going to get. Now, I want to make a couple of points here. Notice the phrase in verse 34, bear, they will bear their guilt. That's basically without suffixes and and things of that nature. It's two words in Hebrew. Same two words used in verse 18 when the Bible tells us that God forgives iniquity. God is a God who is forgiving iniquity. Because of that, they are not destroyed instantaneously. God is a God who forgives iniquity. But the same phrase is used for bearing the consequences of sin. The same phrase used to describe one carrying sin away or forgiving sin is used to describe bearing the consequences of sin. Therefore, when God... When God forgives, who bears the consequences of sin? When we wrong another, it's the forgiving party that is, in a sense, bearing the consequences of our wrong. And God is bearing the consequences of the people's wrong. And He does for Israel and for us time after time. I also find the contrast between what they will know and what their children will know interesting. In verse 34, it says, the text says, You shall know my opposition. You're going to know what it's like to have the Lord as an enemy. But in verse 31, your children who you said would become a prey, they shall know, same word, know the land. They're going to know the land. You're going to know my opposition. And as proof, maybe as kind of a down payment 
of punishment. In verse 36, as for the Moses, as for the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land and who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing a bad report concerning the land, even these men who brought out the very bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. Joshua and Caleb, verse 28, are spared. But the evil men who brought this bad report are killed. They seem to die right away. Now, I know I've gone quickly because one thing, Wednesday night, people turn my world upside down because, <laughs> because I was already worried because I was one chapter behind. And now we're two chapters behind. So what's going to happen? I don't know. Um, uh, but do you have a question here? I want to make sure I get this. But Karen, I was looking at the testing in verse twenty-two. Um, it seems like there are some places, like Deuteronomy eight, that talk about God testing them. Yes. And then there are also places talking about them testing God. Um, what am I supposed to think about? Uh, I mean, I guess there's some of both here. Yes, there, you know, God does test them, and uh, this is the same word that's used of God testing Abraham, for example, in Genesis 22. Um, and God is allowed to test us, uh, and God often tests us, as He does in Abraham's case, to build up or to strengthen our faith. That's the reason for the test. But man testing God is different. Sometimes God is long-suffering with us testing Him. But uh, other times He's had enough. And But think about this too in the fact, and just throw this out briefly. When Jesus is tempted by the devil, He says, you shall not tempt or test the Lord your God. You know all the passages Jesus quotes from are from what book? Deuteronomy. All of them from Deuteronomy. In the same ways Israel failed in the wilderness, Jesus will be tempted and Jesus will overcome temptation. He is what Israel should have been. He is a faithful son while Israel is an unfaithful one. So just throw that out now. We'll hope to get to elaborate on that further. Um, what else? Anything else? I'm not sure I understood the what you're the point you're making about bearing their guilt and it being the same word as bearing. Okay, first of all, understand it's the same word. Okay. That's the most important. It's the same two words to forgive their iniquity and to bear their guilt. Same two words. Now, the rest I gave was commentary on that. Whether I expressed that as clearly, I'm not sure. Uh, but my point is, it, it refers here to Barry. I think that it should... My, my point was to try to express an idea that we should stand in awe of God's forgiveness because He is, in a sense, bearing the penalty for our wrongdoing when He forgives sin. That's what I was trying to express. I don't know if I did very clearly, but maybe the second time, get it across more. If this wasn't so funny, if this wasn't so real, it would be funny. 
to see what Israel does after this. God says go up and they won't go up. But now God says don't go up and they go up. In verse 39, Moses spoke these words to all the sons of Israel and the people mourned greatly. In the morning, however, they rose up, they rose up early and went up to the ridge of the hill country saying, here we are. We have indeed sinned, but we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised. Now they invoke the Lord's name. The Lord has promised us. Where was this faith before? Where was this recognition that the Lord had promised you the land? Oh, now we've sinned. They acknowledge their guilt and they said, we're going to go up. Are they fearing more the fact they've sinned or just simply they want to remove the consequences? But Moses warns them in verse 41. Moses says, Why then are you transgressing the command of the Lord when it will not succeed? Do not go up or you will be struck down before your enemies. For the Lord is not among you. The Amalekites and Canaanites will be there in front of you. You will fall by the sword inasmuch as you have turned back from following me, from following the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. Verse 42, the Lord is not among you. Verse 43, the Lord will not be with you. That's demonstrated in a couple of other ways in verse 44. But they went up heedlessly to the ridge of the hill country, neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord, nor Moses left the camp. God's not among them. He says it in verse 42. He says it in verse 43. In verse 44, when they go up to fight the battle, Moses doesn't go. The ark doesn't go. All of this just emphasizing this is... This is of them. This is not of the Lord. You know what happens when they go up without the Lord? Well, they find out there's giants in the land. There's Nephilim there. The Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in the hill country came down and struck them and beat them down as far as Hormah. They struck them and beat them down. You could have made that sentence with just one of those phrases. But to use both of them emphasizes these people are stronger and mightier than we are. If you go up without His protection, you're going to be defeated. In Deuteronomy 1, when Moses is commenting on this, Deuteronomy 1, verse 26, and Deuteronomy 1, verse 43, here in Deuteronomy 1, 26, He said, the Lord commanded you to go up and take possession of the land. And you rebelled at the word of the Lord. You didn't go up when God said go up. But then at the end of the chapter, in Deuteronomy 1, he's talking about the end of this chapter in Numbers 14. And he said, the Lord said, do not go up. And you rebelled. You rebelled. Whether they go, whether they don't go up when God said go up, or whether they do go up when God says don't go up, in both cases they are rebelling against the Lord. Same word used to describe their response to the word. Now I'll tell you what it reminds me of. In Exodus 16, when God gives the manna, in verses 20 through 28, he says, don't, don't store any of it over. 
if you store it over, it's going to breed worms and it's going to smell terrible. And you know what they did? They stored it over and it had worms and it smelled terrible. And then God says on the sixth day, this time you can store it over. Don't go out and look on the seventh day. You can store it over and I'll spare it. Seventh day comes. There goes Israel out of their tents looking for manna. If there was a way to disobey, Israel has found it. Now again, these are God's people. These are God's people. If you can't see the mercy and grace of God in every chapter of this, you're not looking very closely. Because it's everywhere. It's everywhere throughout these chapters. Oh, it's not that God doesn't punish them. It's not that God doesn't rebuke them. But the fact that God doesn't just destroy them completely and totally give up on them is a statement of His mercy and His compassion. In the place where some people say you're least likely to find it in the Bible. I, I, I wouldn't have ever said that, but, but some would. But it's, but it's everywhere. But, but what would you, what do you have to say in conclusion? It's good timing. <laughs> Sarah? I think now I understand a little better the placement of chapter 15. Yes, yes. And when he says right away, when you go into the land... He's holding out promises. It's a statement of His mercy and grace. Now, um, there is much weeping and gnashing of teeth to figure how in the world shall we figure out how to cover all of numbers in this class. And, uh, you know, I haven't figured it out. I have thought about skipping a few chapters and preaching on those on Sunday night or something like that at some point. And I may do that. I tell you, I love the story of Balaam. And it would preach pretty well. I think. I think it would preach pretty well. So, so we might do something like that. But I'm just kind of keeping you informed as far as what, because we want to cover this whole book, but, um, I, I we'll, we'll try to figure out an inventive way to do that. But anyway, God bless.